From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 135, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Gross, who is the head of a company called Unobstructed View, which used to be called Video Services Corp., which used to be called Video Entertainment Corp., um, and Jonathan essentially is one of the, the leading distributors of physical media that still exists inside of Canada. And what makes him especially special to me is that he his company recently made a, uh, a business partnership with the Criterion Collection. So they are Criterion's exclusive distributor inside of Canada. This is going to sound like a bit of a commercial, and fuck it, maybe it is. Because you know what? I think the Criterion Collection and some of the stuff that Jonathan's doing and, and a lot of the stuff that he's putting out in the company, the companies that he's partnering with, are, are the last stand of people who really are into into physical media. And you know what? I'm not even going to lie. Jonathan brought me the Godzilla box set uh, as a gift and a thank you for coming on the podcast, which I, I gracefully accepted. And if you are a Criterion lover, head over to unobstructedview.com because they have a 40% off sale for the rest of the month of November, and that includes free shipping after a certain amount of money. I think it's 35 or 45 bucks. You're going to spend more than that if you're into Criterions the way I am. And so without further ado, Jonathan and I are going to sit down and watch a film together. So we're sitting down to watch Godzilla Raids again. That's I'm Jeremy, me. and I have not seen this movie. Neither have I. Jonathan Gross has not seen this movie. I've seen the first movie. You've seen the first one, and so have I. We actually did the first one already on the uh, you did? on the episode on the podcast. Yeah, oh, fabulous. So we, I do have the first one, the the set from that, and then instantly. Now, have you seen the American remake of the first one? No. Oh, it's terrible in a really wonderful way. There's two versions. There's a there's an American version of the of the original one. Yep. And then there's the remake. Yeah. But there's the, what they did with the uh, American version of the original one is they t- I think it's a Raymond Burr. They took an American actor of the time and they just basically reshot the movie as, as he's a reporter and they shot it from his point of view. Oh, and so they just added some scenes and they cut oh, in some stuff from the original. But they lost all of the kind of beautiful nuance that the first one had. Because the first one somewhat took it seriously. There's a lot of serious filmmaking going on in yeah. terms of innovation. Yeah. I mean, people involved, it's a fascinating story about Japanese filmmaking, post-war Japanese filmmaking. Yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff going on about the, uh, um, you know, the post-war with the, all the, <clears throat> the nuclear stuff. Like Kurosawa, one of my favorite Kurosawa films 
is I live in fear. Right. Um, and it's about this old businessman who is considering selling his company and moving to, I think, Hawaii or Fuji or something. And his children are trying to declare him insane so they don't lose their inheritance because he wants to get away from Japan. It's uh, a real fascinating... So the, the scholar, the guy who's on the commentary tracks, David Pallette, I forget his name. He knows more than anybody should possibly know about this film. But he, he gets into all kinds of little winding discussions about the involvement of, of the producers with Kurosawa and the overlap between these actors and Kurosawa and all this. It seems to be just one little t- tight-knit community with people who were extremely creative given the budgets they were. Yeah, and they're operating all at the same time. This is the yeah. same year that uh, Seventh Samurai comes out. That's right, the same producer, I think. Yeah, it's Toho, yeah. And th- so they're doing them all. And this, well, this can't, the one thing I do know about this, besides it is obviously a sequel, is that they cranked it out. Like it came out, I think it came out in theaters six months after the first one was released. Did a lot of business. Yeah. The first one. But then they didn't make another one for almost a decade, I think, right? The third one. Right, because they didn't open the first one. The first one had a revival. Right. In 1963, I believe. In the States. It became huge internationally. Yeah, but it was... Somewhere else. Much later. Yeah. Because people weren't making those kind of monster movies. No, and then when it comes back, it's in color, and it's more more focused to kids. Yeah, and I I think it's... Well, we'll watch the film, and then we'll... We'll get into it. We'll talk some more. Yeah. All right, let's do that. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right, so we just finished. We did. What did you think? You know what? It's probably the fastest made sequel in the history of, of, of sequels. Yeah, six months from the release of the other yeah. one to this one coming out. And it, it shows. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, they switched the activity to Osaka from Tokyo because Tokyo's already been destroyed six months ago. Oh, yeah, they can't rebuild it. You know what? Well, they don't it, really give a time frame for how long has passed, have, do they? No, but they bring in that doctor for the one scene. He's only in the one scene. Yeah, what's, what's that actor's name? He's he, a, a classic actor. Yeah, he's in a lot of Kurosawa films, too. Um, well, the producer. It, it, but, you know, I... I still give them credit for the effects. The effects are... That's just it. It's like the miniature work is fantastic. The uh, the sets, like especially those exteriors, some of those buildings are amazing. No. Uh, you mentioned something that I didn't know, is when they do the the, the heat effect on the, the towers, they use wax. Yeah, they, they can't... Those towers were made out of wax. I love that. I had no idea of that. Which they makes they complete built, sense. It's yeah, like it's candle. great. Yeah. No, it's just... There's an inventiveness that you have to have in this era of, of doing these kind of movies where it's like, it makes me like a, a little nerdy kid because you've got to come, you got to figure out how to do that. Well, the one guy figured out, the guy who figured out stop motion animation is kind of the grandfather of all this. And he made the original Kong, King Kong movies in the 30s. And yeah. Some movies that are lost yep. forever. So these guys must have learned from him. But I'm kind of fascinated by, by post-war Japan because... They were devastated by the war, no less than anybody else. They came up with a film industry within 10 years of yeah. of the war. The Germans never recovered their film business. Yeah, these are resilient people. Yeah. And that's why the most poignant scene in this movie for me watching is when the, the daughter, the uh, dispatcher, is like cleaning, cleaning up the office. And they're like, well, we're going to rebuild. Yeah. And 
It's just like that's that's what that's the heart of Japanese culture. Right, they right came there. back and rebuilt the whole country, and they, and, they, and they were still in the midst of it when this film was made. It wasn't if they were on top of the world. No, you know, it was still the the waves from being made in Japan, which was you know an insult. Well, it's, it's 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 almost their only way of being able. To, well, not at this point is fine because the war is over. But back in the the early Toho days, you know, Kurosawa, you know, made you know samurai movies because that was the only thing you could make. You weren't allowed to make anything modern unless it was post. It was unless it was pro war, right? For the Japanese side, so he chose to instead do movies about the past because he didn't want to do. He did one pro war movie and then couldn't. The most beautiful, or something like that. And one of the guys involved in the first one was actually labeled a war criminal because he made all these propaganda films. Interesting. And they brought him back, and apparently he kind of schluffed his way back in. I mean, that's you know the the, the commentary is, is is done by a very erudite author who who's written a books and he's a, he's a scholar and he gets into things that are very 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 deep. I bet on on the theory of Godzilla. What it means to you know the, the the symbolism and all this, I mean I get it. I mean the the fact that Tokyo was destroyed, it's it's a it's a, a metaphor for the nuclear war and, yep. and the fact that that the, the original story of Godzilla is taken from a story of a Japanese fishing boat that got cl- too close to the Marshall Islands, and uh, which was declared them <clears throat> because they tested the hydrogen bomb there some ridiculous number of times. It was the most toxic place on Earth after the war, so. And one of these Japanese radio men from died of radiation poisoning from yeah. being too close to it. So this is how the, the thing started. I, I guess they sat around on board and figured out the story for the second one. You know, some guy in a fishing magnet in Osaka. Here's my theory. You have a theory, okay. I have a theory on, because we were talking while we were watching the movie about how there's such like a heavy uh, plot line about this couple getting married and the oh, best yeah. friend who's looking for a yeah. bride. Here's my theory because of because of how quick this would have had to come together, uh, and just think of how other films become films right. in this in this in doing sequels this fast. I wonder if they didn't take like a romantic comedy that was either ready to go to camera or already shooting and went. Wait a minute, what if we took the storyline <laughs> and, and threw Godzilla into the mix? I'm just throwing it out there. I I have nothing to back that up. You have nothing to back that up. I'm pulling that completely out of my butt. It, but it's just I watch it going because there's so much where there's so much where they're not referencing anything to do with Godzilla. Don't forget there was a triangle in the first film. Right. She was involved with the guy who was the is the pilot. Yep. And she was not not the pilot, he was a um what was he? He wasn't a pilot. No, they were scientists. Right, and the guy and, with the eye patch sees he's the, the guy was the guy she was going with, and then yeah. she fell in love with this guy, and then he this, sacrificed himself. Yeah, he he went down in the diving bell with the other guy, and he cut his air supply. Same thing in this thing. He was in love with her, I believe. Was that her photo? Yeah. Oh, yeah. As soon as that journal got left behind, I knew Kobayashi wasn't coming back. And it said Princess Diary. They couldn't even do it in Japanese. It was an English yeah. diary. I have a Japanese uncle. His last name's Kobayashi. Yeah, yeah, it made me excited to see the Kobayashi in there. Um, but that's why the, the love triangle kind of transferred to the second one. Yeah, it's not a hard formula. No. I mean, that's I, I say this that it's like I think they took a script and they might have just thrown Godzilla into it. But it's also not. I could believe they were like, 
you two go in this room, come back in a week with a script. But the, the, the you know it's, it's such an old old school culture that the woman has to want to get married. I mean, it's kind of that was her goal in life. She wasn't a career person. They all have to get married in the middle of some sort of marriage plan or engagement yeah. thing. They had menial jobs working for the fall, you know, whatever they were doing. And and that's kind of just so some women will go to the film with their boyfriends or the husbands and get something out of it. Oh, hundred percent. No, but I thought like that, you know, that tracked well enough. And, and even though it's like it took up a lot of the the, the screen time, you know, I like the whole. He's a now he's his best friend can figure out the idea of how right. they defeat Godzilla, and he gets to avenge his best friend. And it at right. least makes it personal. Right, it's always personal with the monster, right? I, I think it's great. And the prehistoric thing when they bring in the ankylosaurus or whatever it was. <laughs> I never, never, never quite figured out how a 20 million year old. Because in the first movie. And they know it's that because of a Polish expert and well, a book Polish they have. paleontologist. Yeah. And, and the, the, in the first film, Godzilla's only 2 million years old. <laughs> what, what do you mean? But he wasn't You're right. There were was was some... human beings around at that point. It, 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 it's, it's fascinating. But here they bring up that it's like clearly Se- he's Se- from yeah. the same period. And well, that. I mean, and there's always other Godzillas. Okay, I guess I didn't know there was other. It's the same costume. Yeah. Well, don't they talk about in the first one that every, like, several hundred years, this island sends out, like, a sacrifice That's to Godzilla right. to keep him happy? Right. So that was the Ankylosaurus. I guess it was the Ankylosaurus. Or something. Something. Well, I guess the, the concept is that they were all, they're all frozen, locked under the bottom right. of the water, and these bombing tests have shooken them free. That's right. That's right. Listen... But Godzilla's been radioized. He has the fire breathing because of the... the hydrogen testing, right. Yeah. But the the fascinating thing is that, again, that that these guys make this movie... Apparently the first movie cost, in today's dollars, about a million bucks. It's 62 million yen, apparently. Yeah, I mean, the sets aren't overly complicated. They're all on stages they would have had for other things. And then it's just... The miniatures is probably what half that budget was. But, But they were good. They were like great. I'm watching those battle scenes with the two things, it was like a sumo wrestling match. Yeah, we, we were, talked about that while we were watching it. It's great. I was the way he was grabbing them. Yeah, by the head. It was straight sumo, unstoppable force beats a movable object type thing. Beautiful, but also it's the kind of thing where I, I, I said it when we were watching that there's no that you can see clear eyepieces. I think these guys are wrestling each other blind too in these suits. They're just f- they can't and, see anything. No. But it's great because that's why they're holding each other. Well, they're also fumbling around, and right. it's like it feels clumsy. The yeah. way it probably, you know, if there was two giant reptiles fighting in the middle of a city, probably would. But I, I, I you know, I'm, this is going to be too much of a connection. But um, the last King Kong movie, where he's fighting the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah, the the island one. Yeah, the Kong island, island or something like that. It, it had some sort. Of, it had to have some sort of tribute to this or something like. Yeah. That. The, oh yeah, because it, it all is inside that gully. Yeah. And the thing fell, and they fell, and this thing fell. I mean, I'm not going to get into it. There's no, 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 tribute no. films, but 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 that's in the modern the reference I remind because it was a, a pretty good fight, even though the faces, you know, the mask. But this is what passed, and we talked about this: is that. Nobody was making large-scale monster movies. That's know? just it. Like, I show my son. He still hasn't seen the Godzilla. We're going to sit there and watch it. But just the idea that it's like, at this point in time, like when I, when I showed him Star Wars for the first time, I was letting him know that it's like, imagine you're a kid. Right. 
and you've never seen right. anything like this. And that's essentially what the experience was of Star Wars. Yeah. You, 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 you've seen cartoons, you've seen some stupidity, you've seen Plan 9 from out, whatever you've seen. Yeah. It's not this. No, and that's why, you know, A New Hope gets nominated for Best Picture, because it's a groundbreaking film. Right. You know? And, and that's essentially this, because I was thinking in my mind, you'd have to get up to Dino De Laurentiis' Hong Kong of, King Kong of 76 to see a large-scale film. This is, that's almost 20, unless you can correct me on it. I don't think so. I mean, the, because the horror films that, that came after this in the 60s was mostly Hammer, which is Dracula... Frankenstein, Dracula, Frankenstein, you know, a zombie. And and you said this invented the zombie genre, which we should talk about for a second. Oh, the, I didn't say this. Sorry, the uh, Night of the Living Dead. I was mentioning right, right, how right, my right, son... Right. But that was 1960... That was the early 60s. Yeah. It's a little town in Pennsylvania. I used to go to school in Pennsylvania. I drove through it a couple times. Um, but that invented... Yeah, so that's a genre. Yeah. A friend of mine uh, had a company called Ideal Marketing. He put the... And, and, What's his face gave him just gave him nothing did for laser disc. He sold like a amazing ton, ton of those. I mean, those are the things that that are the foundation stone of whatever the horror business is today. That's just it. And this is this is to me large scale. I don't care what they do, the Incredible Hulk, whatever you want to call it. There's and I said this about the King Kong. There's still echoes of this. Hundred percent. But they're also making these movies. You know, this is the this is the the Showa era, and there's right. like what there's fifteen in this collection, right? And they're all like they're not meant to be these films that are like left behind these classics. They're meant to be this is like the entertainment that's in the cinema that's this right. week. They're just meant to be churned out, and uh, now you've got this because Godzilla was in the top ten for the Japanese box office right. the year it came out. That's right, which is why you churn out a sequel so quick, right? And, and there wasn't much else. No, and there wasn't much entertainment. Else. No, and you. It wasn't like you're going home and watching television. No, you weren't. They, they, they didn't. You know, the, the TV in Japan was limited. You got radio. You did some radio, but and, and you had a culture that was ten years out of you know the war. A lot of people were dead. Yeah. You know, the, the the adult male population. You notice a lot of those people were young guys. The old guys were really old, and they talked about these guys during the war. Some of the filmmakers and what they what they were doing and and how old you know how they learned their craft. I mean. It, it, it's such an isolated culture too. It wasn't they were they were inundated with American culture. No, they they were really isolated. Yeah, and not so, like now. No, now it's it's bizarre. Yeah, it's a very interesting place now. It's, it's such a mixture of it's like the best parts of their culture and the worst parts of ours right mashed together right uh, and uh, on steroids. Well, it's like it's like Japanese now have acne. You know, there's no acne in Japan until the Americans came over with the junk food. Yeah. It was impossible to get acne from the Japanese diet. I went to Japan 50 years ago as a kid to see Osaka 7. They exploded. Couldn't get anything to eat there. You had to eat the Japanese food. There was no McDonald's. Yeah. There was no junk food. You ate the fish and the rice and whatever it was. And they tried to north of the, you know, you get a bacon and eggs at the USO. I had an American passport. That's how I got in. But I, I um, this collection is, is fairly definitive. It doesn't have the last one, I don't think. The big studio picture. No, it's, it ends. It's uh, it comes back to Ishiro Honda though. Does the last one, yeah. which is kind of a it, what a great look bookend. The yeah. terror of Mechagodzilla. Right. Um, At that point, it's like Elvis going out on tour for the four thousandth time. I mean, you you've got a lot of you get so much history wrapped up in this character. Yeah, well, he pops in and out throughout the movie. It looks like he uh, 
he pops in and out of uh, of a couple different ones. So he he keeps his foot his foot inside there. Right. But uh, but they eventually become uh like not cartoons, but like really designed for kind of kids. Well, that's the only way. The level of cynicism now in the world, as opposed to that. I mean, back then, people actually needed a certain type of entertainment, and and the Japanese could make the, either. See, the Japanese stories are either very very small and required a, a very serious understanding of the ancient culture. Any samurai film, you, you had to know something about these people. This you didn't have to know too much. No, because between like sixty three and seventy five here, you know, it's a, they're they're cranking out at least a movie a year and sometimes right. two, um, because their culture was still either either the old young kids didn't understand the old culture and probably didn't want to because it led to World War Two, and they wanted some kind of escapism because everybody was broke over there until things got rolling in the late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, they had a real the economy started to blow up. You know, not not until long after this. I mean, no, but it, but they created this. You know, the, we're you were still. You know, we're now getting back to these new Godzilla movies that are t- going taking it a bit more serious. Right, the way that uh, the original. There's a message. There's some kind of. You know, and, and well, there's a reason why Godzilla comes. We've done something right. bad. That's right. Where in this one, they just they. You know, the guy's <laughs> stranded on an island. He's like, "Hey, what's that? Oh shit, Godzilla's here!" He's Fighting like, an ankylosaurus in front of me. It's not like but, they started testing again, and they deserved it. In the first one, there was context. Yeah. In the first one, there was context. Here, this is threatening our, our, our livelihood, which is apparently the fish industry. And and the wedding day. The wedding day, right. They had, to, they had to reschedule the wedding day. That's right. And now they're leading up to it again for our, our groom That's right. hero. That's right. No, I... You know, sequels and, and series of films, I mean, if you look at how many great... How, what they do now... With the Marvel movies, you mentioned Star Wars. Everything's a franchise. Yeah. So to, to say this... Oh, you got to build a world. Right, right. So to say these guys didn't have a franchise or mock their franchise is to mock pretty much everything being made today. Yeah, but they made that up as they went along. I mean, this is the first Versus movie. Right. In this series. And the That's first... True. And the only one, apparently, where his spine doesn't glow when he's about to fire... Oh, really? Yeah. In the first one... I think it did. It did. I think it did. It, it's was, painted on. It's, yeah, like, it's a, not a great effect. You see a effect. little line down the spine. But this one, for some reason, they missed that in this one. Yes, they did. This, well, they're too busy with the fake uh, flares. Yeah. They've still got, like, I have, uh, there's this great cafe near where I live called the Sidekick Cafe at uh, Queen and Greenwood in Toronto. Uh, and it's a comic book cafe. Oh, really? That And uh, the, the woman that owns it, Chris, she's a huge Godzilla fan. And so in the corner of her place, she's got a, an old, a, a, this small TV and a VHS, and she's got like all the original VHS tapes, and just she's play, play it. plays them on a loop oh, that's, that's, while people are walking around. That's, she must be able to have to get a copy of the show or the book. Yeah. Um, um, but it's great. And so I've often been in there with them just playing in the background and just seeing, and mostly it's like the newer, the colorized, not new, I say newer, it's the ones from the 60s and 70s. Well, well they talk about the music in this thing, and, and, and you have to talk about the noise. Like, like think, I was with a kid at the film festival. And he made this Jewish horror movie called The Vigil, which was in the festival. And he talked about, and, and it was a very loud film. And I said to him, you know, it's a little loud. He goes, no, I, I like Christopher Nolan. I like loud movies. Yeah. 
And this had a volume to it. Yeah. Once it, once it gets into those moments. That, that he talked about how the actual, um, the sound was made to, to, to create the monster sound. It was, it was like a violin bow or something. It was a very strange sequence, the guy in, in the commentary. And, and I got to give them credit for the noise level in the film. Yeah. You don't think of it. It's actually, I mean, I don't want to say it's realistic because, you know, there's no such thing as Godzilla. But when you watch it, it doesn't pull you out in a way that it's like, oh, that's a ridiculous sound. It wasn't. No, no. And, and apparently the guy who scored the film scored like 2,000 films or something in, in Japan, like some ridiculous number of films. And like we said, this whole community was intertwined because this is the guys who made Seven Samurai, the, the, the producers, all these guys were intertwined at Toho. You know, so it all has kind of a creative surge to it. 100%. And guys were looking for work and they put their heart and soul into this thing. And I, I was kind of impressed with the sound. Yeah. Well, and they're, but they're all like craftsmen and they're all working for the studio. Like, you know, Kurosawa comes up as an assistant director right. and also a writer. And he's just, and when he was starting out, he's just writing to make enough money to, to buy sake at the end of the week. Well, one thing about the Japanese, they aren't half milers. Whatever they do, they take very seriously. Yeah. And, and this, you know, they're not just sort of mailing it in here. You know, and, and, and that's the key to the film is that whatever you think was, you know, the, the, the cheese ball flashbacks to the last movie, okay, and this is a, a still, having sat here, um, you know, the characters are, were, were good, but when the two animals were going at it, I go, okay. Yeah, this is fun. More of this, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with it. I, well, it has that great, so- not great, but that kind of ridiculous uh, side plot for a minute in the middle of the movie where those the the prisoners escape. And, and I was like, where is this it, going? And then went nowhere. Well, just, no. Except when the water came down into the subway. Okay, this is the whole purpose of this, to drown them in the subway. Yeah. No, but they, they're the ones that drew Godzilla back in with the fire, the, the, right? The gasoline truck, the, the chemical truck crashed into the thing and that yeah, blew up. Their toy truck, they turned into the, the toy, toy truck. Toy truck. But, but even those miniatures are pretty, like... I, I, I got to say something to you, you know. I, I felt that, okay, I'm watching some, some... And I've said this before. There's some achievement here. Yeah, no, the, the miniature stuff is great. And this is the kind of stuff that I'm... The reason why I'm excited to, like, show my son this kind of stuff is because he, you know, he does a little stop-motion things. Well, there's He's, a slow-mo when I don't interrupt, but there's also yeah. slow-mo. Where the, the monster is dying and it slowly goes into the water. Yeah, very That dramatic. was kind of cool. Well, you know what's interesting? I meant to mention this earlier. So when they did the fights in this movie, uh, they wanted to shoot them all in slow-mo. But what they did by accident for the first day of shooting was they were, instead of undercranking, they were overcranking. And so all of a sudden they realized they were shooting in high speed, and they're like, oh, this is cool. And so they decided to do that for the rest of the, the things, really? except for that one. And so the monsters are moving a lot faster in this one than they are in the original. That's true. And he is in the original Godzilla. He's like smashing through buildings slowly. Yeah. Uh, and it was initially a mistake. Oh, I didn't know that. And then they were, I, think, I don't know if it was like, well, we can't possibly afford to reshoot an entire day. <laughs> um, the guy said that in the commentary, the first one, because of the double exposures, they only had one shot. They screwed up. They had to shoot the whole thing over again. Amazing. Yeah, and they're doing that, and they're they're doing all the. That's just it. It's like, like you said, it's like as ridiculous as a movie like this is, and as fast as they're cranking it out, the technical achievements in this movie you can't deny them. It's like they're doing double exposure, 
They're doing, you know, some kind of rudimentary rotoring. Right, yeah, they are. They are. Absolutely. Like, there's shots where they've got, like, a big crowd of people running through the bottom and Godzilla's fighting the the background. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. That that happens a lot. And and some of that's rear screen projection. They would have shot that and they would have added this. But it's like, it's impressive stuff for 1955. Not only that, again, nobody was doing this. No, it's, it's the Wild West. They're creating this stuff by coming up with it. You know, it took, like I said, we talked about a film uh, watching called The Horror at Party Beach, which we put out. It's a classic horror magazine movie from 1965. I gotta check it out. Same thing, a nuclear waste drops into the bay off of Connecticut, and some monster is grown out of some some sort of thing, and he comes out and terrorizes a cool little Frankie and a beach party, but it's black and white. I mean, it's 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 the same looking monster, but some humans, you know, whatever it is. It's great, and this is, it's a direct... Direct knockoff of this stuff. Yeah. And and so... It's seeping into culture. Right. Yeah. And and you're defining a genre here. It's great. Well, that's, There's no other way around the argument. You went to any serious film school and said, we're going to... What films define a genre? This one. And that's why um, it's interesting. I know leading up to like Criterion announcing their Spine 1000, right. you know, uh, there was nerds everywhere. I would mind included going, what's number 1000 going to be? Right. Like People trying to figure out what's it going to be. It's got to be something huge and iconic. Mm-hmm. And literally, they went with the hugest thing they That's got, right. which is the King of All Monsters. And, and but, but if you look at, you know, you, you take away the original King Kong... This is a genre-defining series. Absolutely. And that's why, and that's what I'm really excited about Criterion. A lot of the stuff Criterion is releasing now, and part of it is that, you know, they've, ex- they've exhausted a lot of their foreign masters yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. But they're going back to movies like, I just think of a lot of stuff they put out in the last couple of years, like Tootsie and The Big Chill and these movies. Well, the American cinema. Like, yeah. If you look at American cinema now, uh, it, 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 you, you have to plumb the 80s. Because that might be the hangover from the 70s. Yeah. It's the only era where you, you could have people making at least, maybe not director-driven, but certainly producer-driven stuff that seem to have a little bit of a free hand. Yeah. Well, things like Tootsie, things like, I mean, you know, Top Gun's being remade. But I was watching Top Gun on, on TV today, and I you know, we talked about the fact that this film Midway is coming up. And we had a film years ago called The Red Baron, which... Um, was a German-made film to kind of whitewash the Red Baron's horrible reputation as an asshole. And they went to Lucasfilm for the special effects and the dogfights. And the minute that happened, you know... It loses some of its... It does. And, and I, I don't care if it's against the screen. It's a real plane. These guys, I get it. Because you and I, maybe me more than you, I'm way more conditioned for films like 12 O'Clock High and Pilot to Bomb. You know, all the old Hollywood black and white war movies. And even things like Top Gun and my favorite World War One movie, which is not really a World War One movie, is, is The Great Waldo Pepper, which, which is all about these World War One pilots after the war. I want to see planes. Yeah. I, I don't want to see special effects and things like that. I, I want to see things. So the 80s was kind of the last era where you could have some sort of Filmmaking without having special effects, just, just loaded with CGI. But that's what I think. What Criterion is doing now is filling in the gaps in the story arc. It's great, and and they're doing it very well. And they're taking on directors that that you would normally see attached to them, and they're making they're, they're making statements. Yeah, because to be quite frank, you're right. The European masters, they pretty much, and it, it's it's left to the culty culty labels like Severin, which did the Changeling. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome, 
um, there's a bunch of these little labels left in America. The guy who did, um, which has been known to be the best Blu-ray of all time, The Swimmer, with Burt Lancaster, he had access to the Sony catalog or something. He was an editor. And you ever seen The Swimmer of the Blu-ray? No. Oh, man, I'll get you caught. What makes it the best? It, the best restoration. It, it, when it came out it, a couple of years ago, people say it's the best Blu-ray ever. Oh, wow. Uh, it's Burt Lancaster. It's a film that people had forgotten, and it, it's a haunting movie that, that is so incredibly prescient about today and things like that. And it's Burt Lancaster in a completely off the role, but this guy did a, a, a Sergio, um, did yeah. a Lee Van get a Spaghetti Western, and he did, I believe he's the guy who did um, Zombie Apocalypse. Is it Zombie Apocalypse? The one with the, 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 the rumor was that somebody actually was killed on the set. Okay. Uh, what was it called? Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll remember it. Yeah. Um, and and those kind of labels that are putting on some very, very underground stuff. And they're competing with Criterion on a certain level because they're doing the same level of restoration. Arrow in the UK yep. does 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 wonderful work. So, But Criterion, I, we love working with them because they are really now concentrating on the American... American filmmaking, yeah, and that that matters to me so much. And well, that's and there are, you said there are so many gaps where like people aren't putting these discs out, and they're, right. they're going to get lost to time if, if someone right. doesn't step in. And you can't tell me Tootsie's a wonderful film. Yeah, I mean, you got young kids; you can play Tootsie for your kids. That's just it. It's it's funny, and I've had debates over Tootsie whether, whether it stands up with the, with the sexual politics with people. I and think it does. I think so. I think well, I think Bill Murray in the cameo. Where he wrote all his own lines. I mean, it's not not to my Godzilla, but but I love Billy. But but Criterion did a great job with this. The book is great. Yeah, the whole thing is great. But I, I, the more I spend time with this stuff, the more I see why it, this is defines a genre. Well, the love they put in. Well, they they pick. I mean, they know what they're doing over there. But when they pick something, they're really and I'm and I, I'm bad about it. But I find myself now more and more. I go back. And I'm digging because they're so. What, what's amazing with them is how they just load up the features with yeah. just such great stuff, and their booklets are are just phenomenal documents, and, and their essays and their commentaries. Like it's just, I, I, I often say to people, is like the best film school you'll ever get. Yeah, is cri- the Criterion right. Collection. You don't have to go to you don't you don't have to go to, to an Ivy League school to talk about you've got mail. You, you can you can do you get the shop around the corner. You know I I. When you go to New York and you go to their office, you meet everybody. There's never one person who says, "I'm the guy doing this." Oh, that's it, great. It's very, very like everyone's the the, the piece of the puzzle, and no one says he's the guy and he's the guy. No, it, it's everybody, and and that's what makes it fascinating. A criterion and the and the effort they put in. You know, they got that channel now too, but I don't think the channel just detracts from the collection. I think I think I think true collectors no. will still buy the hard good and have their library and, and do it. No, and the, and, the, and the channel's good. I push a lot of film... I mentor a lot of young film students, and I push them towards that, because I'm like, for nine bucks a month, you know... Yeah, you're it's, getting... Yeah. The, it's the, the last stand. It's it's the best catalog you'll ever get, and and all, just the fact that they have all the features on their channel, right. too. Right. They, they load up... I think it's like 1,300 different titles, but it's amazing. Movies. But you can, compared to Turner Classic Movies, it's 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 better. Yeah. It's better than AMC, obviously, all those channels. And, I, and Sundance now... It's just so I think we're we're without these guys and the couple of guys I mentioned before. The history is going to go away. Yeah, I mean, who's the director who said I don't have to study the masters? I just have to study someone who studied the masters. <laughs> you know, it's it's everything is kind of watered down. 
Yeah. And and you're a filmmaker. And I watch movies today and I go, oh my God, like, did anybody look at the script before they started shooting? You know, uh, I know, and, yeah. And, and we're big, and, and we, we do a lot of work with Israeli filmmakers. And, and they've, I guess, they moved all to television. All the money's moved to television. Yep. Because the Israeli films now look like they were written on the set between takes or something. And it, it just not, nothing's really developed enough. Yeah. And everything seems kind of watered down. Where, where, where films like Godzilla, whatever we think, there was some craft. Yeah. There's some craft. In there's a hundred percent craft. In there's, there's, there's a ton of craft, even in the, some of the, the scenes that don't work. At least it's, it looks like in black and white. Whatever, it looks like it's lit properly. There's some actual that they give some people some time to have sit without having to have dialogue twenty four seven. They're allowed to be. Yeah. And and that's the big thing in filmmaking. You don't see today people just allowed to react and be. Yeah, and they take their time with the storytelling. They're not rushing right. themselves through it. Right, it's and so great. I get the fact that he's engaged to this one and he's got a crush. I get it. Yeah, you know, I understand people are lonely. I get it. You know, and, and, and you know that's that was fine for me. I, I maybe I'm just getting older, but I don't complain as much. Yeah, except we are conditioned. Even though, even though we, I think you know, you and I, we we, we both appreciate these older movies that take their time. They're slower, but it's hard not to like. We're also used to that new pace where everything's got to right. come up and have an explosion. He, and my st- buddy's kid went to Tufts. He majored in film. And he did a thing in high school, stop action. A basic rudimentary, learn how to move something around. Yeah. I mean, that's a wonderful exercise. You're just learning how to move something around on camera and getting some kind of motion out of it you can control. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me is, is fascinating. And guys in costumes, which still happens. No. But it is, it's a, you mentioned that quote in the way I think about it, in the way I've been really approaching film in the last couple of years of my own like ongoing, never-ending education is the right. idea of like, I've kind of exhausted all of my influences, and so now I'm going back and diving into their influences. Right. And you keep, and you keep on going back. It's, it's kind of like once you've... My father-in-law is a big history, was a big history guy, and so he... Tried to go back as far as he could to his family tree. Oh, he did. Well, he could. He went back until he couldn't find anything further. <laughs> yeah, he went back to like to 400 BC. Oh, come on! I'm not kidding. He oh, found, come on! He found like stuff that, like r- the rudimentary stuff that he can't necessarily prove, but enough stuff that it's like here's something. Not BC, sorry, AD, not 400. Still, BC. yeah, no, but it's like he 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 be- he believes strongly that he knew he could trace things back that far. But anyway, but to my point, it's just like. You know, we don't. People like they read the Coles notes of shit. They don't. They don't spend time right, going well, back I, and going I, through. I, my, my son went to film school in Boston, and he knows his movies. Like yeah. I'm gonna give him. You know, he's acted a little bit, whatever, and he knows his movies. And he's gotten past that 23 year old kid thing where you know nothing. And I'm I've studied all this stuff, and I got all the opinions. Yeah, but he he's terrific to go see films with. Like, and and I, and I think that's one thing about about generational movies. Is that your kids are young? My kids are my, my daughter loves old movies, and and if if you had some kind of grasp of the gestalt on Godzilla, it's very easy to watch. Yeah, because once you get some gestalt of post-war Japan, it all makes sense. And the fact that these guys work with again Kurosawa and all these guys was kind of one community of people. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. Yeah, the same guy that. Producing Kurosawa's producing because they're holding frame on some. I've seen that in Kurosawa films. It's amazing, you know. So I, I don't, 
It's funny, I, I, I don't tend to laugh at things. You know, sure, you're going to laugh at Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah, but they're trying their best, too. Yep. And then Everyone's he, trying everybody, their best. Everybody's trying to... Sh- Ed Wood <laughs> he made an effort. No one tried harder than Ed Wood. No, nobody. <laughs> and and when you go to Hollywood, I mean, we've all spent time in L.A., and you meet people you know, that have made stuff, even the garbage at the American film market. Some of them take it very seriously. Like this kid who made this movie, The Vigil, was a horror, a Jewish horror movie. We tried to buy it. it it's not, it's not horrible. He's an Orthodox Jewish kid. He he knew his movies. Yeah. He he didn't. He was a pretty. He didn't. He just didn't show up with a script and let's make some dough. You know, I think that's maybe what's going to be left of the film business: people that are passionate about film. That's the only way to get into it now. The only reason to because it's such oh, a yeah. it's such a tough business. But if you can make something that 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 touches somebody, yeah, that's all you can do is try you know, to connect. If you can, like, I've been a huge fan of this Tarantino film because it, it looks like it, some emotion went into it. The new one, yeah, yeah, and very divisive. Like, I I quite enjoyed it. Oh no, I've been i been nuts because I I spent time in L.A. I knew a lot of that. The music alone, that, that I could have closed my eyes and. and the music and the and the, and the and the air checks from the real Don Steele. They announced the uh, the Blu-ray details today, and apparently there's a steelbook that's going to come with a vinyl. That's right, with seven inch vinyl. Yeah. But apparently they re-released it in the theaters with more footage this weekend or last weekend with ten more minutes. That's such a fad now. That idea of like re-releasing movies. I'm going back. Yeah. I mean, there's a guy who who made his own Kurosawa film. Yep. Right. The the um the Kill Bill, Kill Bill part. There's his Kurosawa film. Yeah, well, that's what he does. He like picks these genres, he right? Does, right. But he knows his films, so there's nothing wrong with that because it's it's certainly an homage. Yeah. And if you can make a Godzilla film, you probably would if if he, if he was so 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 inclined to. Yeah, and his would be a different Godzilla film than you've ever seen. Well, he's writing a Star Trek movie, right? Is he writing one? Yeah. I don't think he's gonna. He's planning on directing it, but he's writing a Star Trek movie. Abrams, and who's going to? Do? I don't think it won't because he said, you know, if, if all is to be believed, he's only got one more film left. That's what he said. But I, so I think if he's writing a Star Trek movie, I can't imagine he's going to go out on it. But wouldn't that be an interesting move for Tarantino to finish his film career on a franchise film? Right, but he would he would do a lot of uh, original Shatner. Like he'd go back and he'd, yeah, there'd be there's going to be, be some, some, very some, right. We'll see, and there'd be a whole bunch of B roll that would go behind. You know, he would he would do something crazy, but. I, I found that that film there was authentic American filmmaking, you know, because yeah. there was no special effects. Yet a couple of guys, DiCaprio and Pitt, showed up at their A game. I just, I just found myself just like drifting into it and yeah. just really just feeling like a warm bath going over me and just right. really enjoying it. Because it, it was completely of the moment and he captured the moment. He was uncompromising about the art direction. And what about the, the Godzilla film? It, 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 it's. Same. It never. There's no seams. You. They talk about the double exposure. You see some of the film damage. There's a little bit of strings, but yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, but but still, it it holds. It doesn't pull you out. No. No. It's it's charming. I, it's part of the charm of it. Right. I didn't feel like oh, I'm standing back. Oh, this is you know whatever it is. I was watching it. Yeah. And okay, what's gonna happen? I mean, I know what's gonna happen. Yeah. There's some ridiculous stuff going on, but it's like at the same time, it's like you're you're it's along funny, for the ride. It's funny that. The film only works when Godzilla's on the screen. Like the best parts of the yeah. film. Yeah. Well, you're just waiting for that. When the monster shows up. And I'm, I'm 65 years old. 
and I'm waiting for the monster to show up. Yeah. I mean, that, that's amazing. Like, any, any, like, you know, that's the amazing thing is that, okay, fine, we've got some, st- like Jaws, right? Yeah. Spielberg's show me, show God- me the shark. Spielberg, Spielberg's Godzilla film, to be. Yep, 100%. Right? When the shark shows up, well, you got a movie now. Yeah. You know, and the bridge from the, from the town to the shark is, is what's his face? The, the captain of the ship. The, the, what's his name? Uh, what's it? Yeah. Um, what's the actor's name? Uh, Roy, uh, no. not Roy Scheider, not, not no, no, the old, the old, the, the, the guy. Oh, the old guy, the, uh, the guy. He's in um, the Sting. Um, right, right. Having a moment, Robert, Robert. He, uh, but he's the we'll bridge. Remember. Yeah, he's the one who brings you into that environment. They couldn't just go to the shark. No. Right. Same here. They couldn't go quite to the monster. They have the guys and the pilots and someone yeah. in between. But it's also like it's got that great. It's also so American in that it's like, well, we don't want to close down the beach because that's how we make money. That's right. So it's like they're it's they're making a mistake and it's their own fault. <laughs> and he's the guy who's the moral center. Yeah, of the Roy film. Snyder's like, what are you, yeah. goddamn, you idiots? But 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 that's Spielberg's Godzilla film. Yeah, and my son loves that movie. So because there's only some sort of costumed shark. There's no special effects. Yeah, and then, well, they had one, and then it broke down, so he had right. to like do it completely differently, right? right? And, he, and he had he he made his Godzilla film, right? And there's a Jaws too, and a Jaws. I mean, not that yeah. he was involved, but he cash him checks, That's right? What, but yeah. the Jaws thing is Spielberg making a sea monster film. Yeah, and I guarantee if he spoke to Spielberg, he he. Have to reference something. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it'd be interesting to watch it now going, where are the uh, the connections? Well, when you look at like 1941, as flawed as that is, you know, he's he's kind of taking, he's taking, well, the opening is taking the piss on Jaws, but right. he's also got the Japanese influence right. too, right? And then he made that, he made that apology, what was the Japanese, the other one movie made with Christian Bale when he was 12. Red Sun, was it, was it called? Oh, uh, Empire of the Sun? Great movie. Yeah. That's one of my Spielberg black holes. I actually haven't seen that one. Oh, it's a black hole. You have to watch it because it has, um, it's got a real Cash 22 feel to it sometimes, too. It's very surreal. Nice. But it's a young, Bale's 12 years old, I think, in it. Oh, so that must have been one of his first. Yeah, and maybe it's, but but it's a great movie. And it's been Malkovich. No, it's, it's, it's it's a good, yeah, I'm going to watch it. It's a good movie. Don't, don't, don't walk away. But, but as we're sitting here and I realize Spielberg made, his Godzilla film is Jaws. Yeah, 100%. So I got to ask you, um, how did you guys get involved with Criterion? Did well, they go after, were they well, looking for a Well, here's how it works, and here's how it works. So uh, we've been in business for a long time. Yeah. We started out in the VHS movie business, you know, 27 years ago. I had every women in prison film ever made. I had bought the contents of a company in Kitchener called Video Entertainment Corporation, which was owned by a guy named Kurt Glemser who had been in the bootleg record business. But the RCMP shut him down. What other business can I get into when no one really cares too much about <laughs> the cop? Ah, the new home video business, he's making movies. And we, I, my family were in the blank VHS business like 30-some-odd years ago, so he was a customer. I was living in L.A., I was doing some writing. He called me one day and sold the, the business. He sold the company, the guy bought it, was going, was going bankrupt. He said, come up with, it, with some stupid number. I bought the company. And we started doing like a lot of budget movies, I had written a Gemini Award show uh, with one of the guys from the Air Forest. We put up the Air Forest. We kind of developed sell-through video in Canada. 
And and we had the Air Force, and then we had Tom Green, and we had um, a lot of hockey, and we had Corner Gas, which was a huge hit. My cousin Kenny and Spenny, their show. So we did really well. And and TV, the TV business kind of went away, unless you were Shout Factory and you had WKRP, and so we weren't getting big. We did some business with Saturday Night Live. It was always there. We had to get into the feature film business at one point. We started doing theatrical work for Magnolia and some other people. But we kept the hard goods business going. And because, for some reason, I knew people in L.A., we started picking up these small, culty lines. You know, I talked about CAV, which was Severin, uh, and we we talked about um, uh, Synapse in Detroit, uh, which just put out this... It's a Suspiria thing. We picked up Kino Lorber about three, four years ago. Yeah, Kino they're... Lorber is certainly, um, in terms of their archive, on a very high level. They don't yeah. do the quality of restorations, that, but on, in terms of the, the MGM library they have... They're filling in gaps. And they have they have other films, the lines they pick up, and, and they're actively acquiring new films. So we, we did a lot of work with them. They're wonderful people. So that gave us kind of a... A, a distinct feel that we were in the collectible archive business. Between them and everybody else we had, then we picked up Arrow. And Arrow, to me, is is an unbelievable label, and they've gotten way more into Hollywood stuff and weird science. They have We have RoboCop coming the end of November with the X-ray, you know, Steelbook and a special Blu-ray. Which used to be a Criterion title. That's right, but this is a next-level rest. Trust yeah. me. These oh, guys, I'm sure. I'm sure. These guys, these guys are, are very serious about what they do. If you don't have a RoboCop, I, I suggest you, you get one off the website. Um, and so Criterion was with E1. E1 folded up their whole business. The last, they, they moved it all to a studio, Universal. Wonderful people. But they had some problems with the criteria in terms of their inventory and what what Universal could do or could not do with a label that needs kind of a a boutique type feel. Yeah. So E1 and I made a deal to take it over. Universal was fine with it. And we just started with them like after the film festival. Yeah. We we just we just we just started releasing the new stuff. We had to catch up because there was a gap. And I I gotta say something, and and we have a lot of wonderful people we work with. Around the world, these guys are serious about their business. Yeah, you can tell it's just the. I, I've not met a label where there's this level of serious. Now I know Arrow is very serious. I know everybody has their own seriousness. In terms of the scale, the fact they're still putting out eight to ten films every month. Mm-hmm. The fact that the care and the love, you know, the TLC they put into the graphics, everything they're doing, their presentation, the way they take care of their retailers and their fan base, uh, it's a next level thing. And the guy who owns the company is a wonderful guy. So far, we're having a great time, and, and it's, it's kind of made us up our game. Yeah. So we've upped our game on the website. We're upping our game in retail. We're trying to reopen some accounts that used to be in home entertainment that are not. And I'm having a great time. You know, I've been in business a long time. We hired a new sales guy, and I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm enjoying it because of, of the level of professionalism you see at Criterion. Yeah. Now we, we, we had to up our game a little bit. Well, that's just it. I mean, you guys have always been, that's, it's, uh, it's interesting that I, I hadn't thought of it that way for your company, but the, the kind of the video archive. Oh, we business. have, a, we're, we have a lot of catalog, but that's, what's great about it is like, but the idea of like bringing on criteria now is just like that, that cherry on top. It's the final piece of the puzzle. And I don't know any other line that, that is available that has this level of, no. of, of, of prestige. Nobody does. And, and like I said, the hard goods business is not going to go away. Because what we talked about before is true. 
that the streaming services and all these channels, they don't care so much about the past. They're, no. not, they're not in the archive business. Criterion is on their channel, which is highly recommended. But that, but even their, the stuff on their channel, it, it doesn't, it's not always up. No. Netflix is not doing this. The new HBO Max thing will not be doing it. They have to invest in new content because people want to watch television. No, they're just making stuff up. They just want the thing that's going to... When Netflix wants you, wants a good four days. Right. That's all they want. The rest of it, who cares? Yeah. They want some eyeballs for four days, so those eyeballs can be captured for the next four days. Yeah, and then they need something else for the next four days. You know, and, and, and I find the quality of their filmmaking... Well, it's, it's just stuff that's transient. It's like, you know, we're not making a lot of movies these days, unfortunately. They're the well, kind of movies... They're spending money, like... What do they spend on some ridiculous... Well, they, they made The Laundromat, which is a Soderbergh film. And they made it in a few weeks. Apparently, they only shot for a few weeks or something. But they might have two or three crews going that's, that's not That's not surprising for Soderbergh. He's one of those experimental guys that goes from... Like, it's experimental. Yeah, Ocean's Eleven to something like that. Right, right, right. And it breaks down the fourth wall, whatever. But that's a big cast. But the, the numbers they throw around, I mean, it, it is crazy. This the, the and What's happening, you're a Canadian filmmaker, and... and, and they're now taking over the light box, right? I didn't know that. Yeah, you can't... People I know in distribution who have um, Canadian films cannot get in the light box anymore because it's all booked up in Netflix movies. Because Lightbox is the only place that will take Netflix movies yeah, for a limited window. Well, they made a big stink about... Right. About, so you're a filmmaker. Yeah. You, you now have a problem. You know, let's see you got a film. It's going to be in TIFF. It's people, blah, blah, blah. It's a good movie. Find a place to show it. Oh, it's tough. Yeah, we, we were constantly having that debate with what do we do? We, do we do day or date? Well, you uh, can't. You got a Canadian film that needs to breathe. Yeah, it's tough. And you got to find someone to platform it and people that open it, and it's very hard. And and it, it, otherwise, you sell it to a pay network and have a nice time. Yeah, and you got to hope that they give you enough that it covers it because you're never going to see another penny. Not another penny. Not one penny. I'm, I'm in distribution. I, I feel your pain, but. But but I'm very worried about the film business because because uh, I know TIFF had some problems with their with their audiences and I don't like the building that much for fun. It's not a fun place to go. But they have a new mandate to get some people in the seats, even though they get a million bucks from the government to support Canadian films. You know that they they have the Irish that the, the Scorsese film yep. playing on two screens. Was it three hours or two and whatever? Something like that. It's. It opens when a couple of weeks or something. Very soon, yeah. They they started pre-signing tickets a while back, but it's it's like sometime in November. But they are running a director series. They're running a lot of stuff um, with directors that we have at Criterion, and the uh, the guy at the, at, the, at their their swag shop uh, is is going to put a whole much more Criterion in the store. Oh, great! And and they are still their programs do reflect uh, uh, some sort of belief in the history of film. And I, I like I said, I think that. The only future is the past. I think you have to watch old movies and understand there's so much more humanity in the old films. You know, I, well, they, they were made. You know, not all of them were like we talked about how these were meant to be transient films. But they're, you know, even then, it's like so much of these one. They're just made to. They're made to rewatch. They're made to see more than once and get more out of. But you watch Godzilla. You got some pathos for the Japanese people in general. Yeah, struggling to rebuild a whole thing. That first one, like, and that's what was kind of missing from this one too. Like, there's stuff in that first one where Godzilla's coming to the city and attacking, and there's his mother on the street with her two kids. Yeah, and they don't cut back, and it's not it's not a hero's moment where someone swoops in and saves them. No, they're going to die. That's right, because it's a metaphor for the nuclear bomb. Yeah, they're walking through the hospital, 
and they're talking about all these people that have been exposed to radiation yeah. because of the monster there, and it's like these people are going to die. Right. Everyone in this room is dead. Right, and and that's that's the nuclear holocaust angle that that they're still trying to make some commentary on in subtle ways. Because, sure, because the the country the country was so scarred. Yeah, but that's the way. You, that's the only way you can do it. It's a spoonful of sugar, right? Right. You got you got to throw some entertainment at them to like teach them a lesson. Right. So this is becoming more of a spectacle now. However, the first one and shades of this one. Because anytime you have miniatures, you're destroying a city. Well, that's a metaphor for a war. Yeah, but when you think about it, we did we did um, the metaphor we were talking about. It's like how this you know this invented you know this big monster kind of thing, and we've got right. Romero doing zombies. Right. But Romero, Romero's taking a page out of this book too, in terms of that metaphor. Like every time he cranks out a new zombie movie, he's making a comment on society in some way or the other. Well, we we are a zombie society. Yeah, it's unfortunate most people are zombies. Yeah, but he's using the mall. Or he's using absolutely, that, right? absolutely making. Them and it's not an accident that that movie takes place in a mall. Not a, not a chance. Not a chance. And that's the place where it all goes to die. That's why Landis did that car chase scene in the mall in the Blues Brothers. Yeah, because he, he had to make a comment on on on, on the stoop, you know, on malls. I mean that, and that's the height of the mall culture back then too. But th- that's kind of. You know, it's funny. The, the more you discuss it, the, the the more things become a little more rich, yeah, and a little more worth looking at. Well, thanks for this. I mean, uh, this is really exciting. I, I, I it's a gift, and I thank you. Yeah, the, they 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 gave me the Godzilla pack, which I have been eyeing. Yeah. So I'm gonna, you know, what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do my own separate episode where I go through the That's entire right. collection. Available at unobstructedview.com because there's only a few. Co- we only got a, an allotment for Canada that, that you know it'd be tough to get refills. There you go. So that's it. So this is your this is your place to get your Criterions in Canada, guys. Yes, it and they're is. they're doing the flash sales. Well, the fun no, we have a, a November. All November is a catalog sale. Ah, forty percent off the whole catalog, not inventory, the whole catalog. So it's a big deal. What we're trying to do for the Canadian consumer, I don't want to waste too much time, but no, but but the the when we took over the line, uh, a lot of people were saying, well, well, how come we don't have a Barnes and Noble sale? Yeah, and I said, well, we're going to do that. I lowered the the, the SRPs. Uh, by a significant amount every every SKU, and we're at least running until our retailers get up and running 100 percent on the on the website. We're running a parallel sale to the Barnes and Noble, so you're getting the same discount pretty much in Canadian dollars uh, delivered here. You don't have to and people pay stupid freight from the states. Yeah, and the Criterion realizes this too. They're trying to help us. Yeah, so we're trying to make and I I, I did not get involved with this. Uh, if I couldn't make it a little more affordable for the Canadian consumer, we're taking. That's what, that's what made me the most excited when I found out you guys are doing this because I, I'm not going to lie. It's like I spend, you know, every time the flash, I wait for the flash sales and be, want, be, because I knew, well, I, wait, I always wait for the flash sales when I was buying them off either Barnes right. and Nobles or Criterion because I knew that the freight I was going to pay or the, the, would the, kill you. Well, it's just, it would equal it out, at least equal it out where if I didn't wait for the flash sale, I'd be paying for the American price plus the right. shipping plus it's, the it's freight. A stupid money. So at least it evened it out for me. But this is even better now. No, we're be- we we really pretty much match price. Pretty no, it's much great. Match price in Canadian dollars. I just got my first shipment of them today. Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun, man. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I have to come back again. We'll do a. And, and I was on another podcast, and he'd never done a Paul Mazursky film, so we have to find a Paul. What the fuck film you haven't seen? Oh, there's tons. We'll 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 exchange. All uh, right, we'll, you, I'll come. List. We'll come back with a list. We'll figure out something to have some fun with. Yeah, it's gonna be great. Okay, great, man. Thank well, thanks you. Thanks for thank coming you, up. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Godzilla Raids again. 
Don't forget, for the rest of the month of November, you can go to unobstructedview.com and pick up your Criterions for 40% off. So get over there. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.